Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us today is my good friend, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, on what to expect in the week ahead, as well as some thoughts that he has on his mind. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Uh, indeed, uh, always always a pleasure having you on. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And be sure to catch up on our interviews from the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium last week, where our coverage was sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and Raytheon Missiles and Defense. Aside from our interviews, check out our Cavus Ships podcast, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who took their weekly podcast daily. Don't miss it. And also check out the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Um, Byron, uh, thanks very much. A uh, couple of very, very uh, thought-provoking notes uh, on your part. Uh, one of them, Russia, Ukraine, uh, what to expect, and also what to expect from upcoming earnings, as well as some of your takeaways from the Surface Navy Association's uh, conference, uh, where um, you also raised some uh, thoughtful uh, issues on, on military parochialism. And of course, we're going to get to uh, the week ahead. First, let's start with Russia and Ukraine, right? You've been sort of gaming out what this all means, uh, what this means for um, defense and aerospace shares. Where do you think we are on this crisis? And what do you think it means? Look, I raised my probability of a large-scale conventional conflict from 40% to 50% taking place in 2022. You could probably bound that by, you know, between now and March and then in the summer and maybe again in, in the fall. Uh, although I think, you know, lean on the, the, the first part of that uh, <laughs> seasonal segregation of, of when something might happen. But, you know, and I'm really just looking at a, you know, the fact that really nothing happened from the talks uh, in Vienna, Brussels, and Geneva, I don't think that was a surprise, but there certainly wasn't any apparent stand down. Um, this announcement that they're going to be joint military maneuvers with Belarus in February, and you were moving Russian forces into Belarus, I think was significant. Uh, you had, you know, Secretary of State Blinken in Ukraine and Germany, and then uh CIA Director Burns uh, in Ukraine last week. You know, so there's a high level of, of U.S. diplomatic effort still going on here. Um, I wrote about, you know, markets and how you're really starting to see things like credit default slop, swaps blow out on Russian sovereign debt. And the Russian stock market is taking a hit here, too. And, and you're also starting to see um, a positive reaction to U.S. and European defense stocks. Again, there are a lot of factors you could attribute this all to. But to me, they're just kind of a collective set of events that I look at and go, well, I don't think anybody absolutely knows what's going to happen. But I'd lean right. more towards the idea that you're going to see a use of conventional military force at scale. Um, against Ukraine, uh, there's at least a, a toss up of 50 percent probability of that happening. Um, what does this tell us, right? I mean, because you're a, a student of history and strategy uh, as well. Um, what does this tell us about the impact of perceptions of deterrence, right? I mean, we're saying 
uh, boy, we're going to punish you worse than you've ever been punished. We're going to punish you worse than you did in, uh, we did in 2014. It's, it's evident that nothing we're doing is really changing what Russia is going to do about whatever it's going to do. It hasn't stopped assassinations. It hasn't stopped uh, Russian bullying. It didn't stop Russia from doing anything in Belarus or in Kazakhstan or indeed uh, potentially again to Ukraine. Um, it, it, you know, so what, what, what is it that we could conceivably do to them that would move a needle, right? Because we're in this situation because over the course of many years, the pain has not been sufficient, or rather, Russia is willing to accept the pain to achieve what it views to be its goals, right? And and China is watching this, sure. as we discuss on the show all the time. Um, I mean, from your perspective, where are we? What do we need to do? And what does this mean geostrategically? Because ultimately, we don't want to fight, and our adversaries have basically recognized that. Ergo, they might no, not I be think, as look, worried the, the Russians clearly, as they might be. Yeah, the Russians have clearly made a calculation about their ability. You know, they're not dummies here. They clearly are assessing what could the West do um, from a range of actions, uh, you know, particularly economic statecraft and, and an array of sanctions that could be applied to Russia. You know, I, I think the, the issue is while Russia has been kind of fortifying their financial house since... 2014, 2015, Europe has not done anything to really reduce their dependence on Russian natural gas, oil, and coal. Um, not that the coal is a big factor here, it's really about natural gas. But the point is, I think they, they must feel that, you know, amassing the force that they've amassed, that they have leverage and um, that they are not deterred by the potential threat of of US and European sanctions, whatever those sanctions may be. I mean, if we sanction individuals, fine, you know, so, but, but you know, the, the tossing them out of the SWIFT system, which um, there have been some back and forth on that. I think that that probably is unlikely, uh, but even Nord Stream 2, I think, you know, one of the outcomes apparently uh, reported today was um, Blinken had con convinced the Germans to uh, consider sanctioning or ending Nord Stream 2 if Russia invades Ukraine. Um, so, you know, but I think Russia also sees this as a, that there are going to be fractures and fissures between the United States, <clears throat> um, Western Europe, Central Europe, the Nordic countries, Southern Europe, uh, depending on their, you know, various economic exposures and positions. And uh, Russia probably feels that they can exploit that, that there's a, a seam or a window that they can really press through. And that's the danger of this. What would deter Russia more fully? I recommend reading a letter or a posting made by Secretary of Defense Ben Wallace of the UK, um, really kind of an open letter to Russia and Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, I think kind of waving them, attempting to wave them off and kind of countering some of the arguments that Vladimir Putin has been making about particularly NATO encroachment on Russia and how the West is hostile to Russia. And it's a very thoughtful piece. Um, I don't think it'll change things. I do think there's some important symbolism in the fact that Britain is, is you know, delivering as we speak uh, these anti-armor weapons, uh, kind of infantry type weapons to Ukraine. So there are little things like that, but that type of action to me is not gonna deter a plus 100,000 military force uh, that's gonna potentially 
you know, bring the full weight of uh, Russian and Belarusian combined arms against against Ukrainian forces. Uh, you'd really need, I think, something more stark. And it's just, I, I don't see the West and the United States going there right now, you know, where, where we would come out and say, we are going to help <clears throat> Ukraine defend its territory militarily. There's just, there's not an appetite for it. And I think that's something that ultimately it would deter Russia if they really thought this would lead to a wider war, but it's not on the table right now. Do, do you think pressure on the Russian financial sector uh, is going to be sufficient to change Russia's course? I don't know, Vago. I think, like I said, I think the Russians are smart enough to have gamed this out. Right. <clears throat> and whatever they will, whatever they, they do, will ultimately reflect their assessment of how they can weather uh, tighter sanctions, um, you know, I don't think if SWIFT was a deterrent, you know, they probably have some ways around that. We're not going to blockade or embargo uh, Russian uh, energy exports. And, you know, we're not going to enforce that militarily. I mean, so this seepage and leakage um, from economic statecraft, it's probably going to raise some much broader questions. You know, you can look at at Iran and, and look at the same issue quite bluntly is has Iran really been deterred by economic statecraft that's that's a separate discussion to have but I think an interesting one I think we found uh, that uh, Henry Kissinger's admonition and one that was invoked by the Finnish president uh, Sauli Ninisto uh, recently is right right once you take force off the table you're leaving the inter- international system to whatever state is willing to exploit that weakness uh, right and right. Uh, alas, uh, that's that's unfortunately where we find ourselves. Um, uh, it's all a matter of will. It doesn't matter how good our stuff is if we're not willing to fight, uh, as as opposed to um, having the will to fight, maybe. And even if your equipment is maybe not as good. Yeah, as I mean, you could you could rewind the tape. You could have had something, you know, six months a year ago where you were actually training Ukrainians outside of Ukraine on how to use more advanced Western kit, so that that could be. Those units could be um, sent, uh, you know, Ukrainians with Western equipment more advanced than the stuff they currently have could be deployed to Russia in a heartbeat. But we're kind of there's not enough time for that right now. I mean, you you know, it took I think I've mentioned this in past broadcasts. I think it took the Soviet Union about six months to get an integrated air defense system to North Vietnam uh, in the 1960s, and uh, and that was initially manned by by Soviet personnel. You know, eventually the North Vietnamese took it over, but <clears throat> these things just don't turn on a dime. Particularly the more right. sophisticated systems that would be of, of uh, great use to Ukraine right now. Uh, unfortunately, one of the benefits of an authoritarian uh, system. Uh, before we go any further, a word from our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command uh, and Control. Uh, Byron, I want to go to uh, your look ahead on uh, first quarter before we get into military parochialism and uh, your takeaways from Surface Navy Association. What are you expecting uh, from the big names uh, reporting? Right starts this week. Uh, We're going to hear from Boeing on Wednesday. Uh, Of course, all eyes are on the company, given its importance in the commercial aviation universe. Um, And yesterday's business roundtable, we discussed Airbus uh, and uh, Boeing uh, order and delivery figures um, for for last year. Uh, Walk us through where you think uh, the industry is going to end up. 
Well, I think hopefully it's going to be a little bit better than the October earnings season, where I think you, you really had a reset in consensus expectations. It was primarily driven by Lockheed Martin's initial guidance for 2022. There have been a gap between investment outlays, uh, DOD investment outlays, and what, what consensus sales expectations were. There really hadn't been any change in, in the underlying budget, but you had this reset. Um, I don't think that's going to happen again this time. The investment outlays were actually pretty decent, <clears throat> although lumpy, um, for the quarter uh, that ended in December. I'm sure companies are going to have, um, you know, the, the issues that the rest of the economy is facing with supply chain and, uh, you know, outages, workforce outages because of the pandemic. Um, you know, there's not a lot new to report on the budget. Um, I didn't hear anybody in the last quarter say they thought that we have an appropriations bill by the end of, of 2021. So, you know, I, I suppose the bigger issue is kind of what you guys talked about in the call on Friday um, with, with Mike Kirshen on, uh, you know, the timing of an FY22 continuing resolution and when we get final appropriations. And uh, I just don't think anybody's going to come out in this quarter and say, yep, yeah, it's a full year CR and this is where we're gonna set our guidance for the year. Um, they're not gonna go there right now. And let's move on uh, to Surface Navy Association uh, and uh, military parochialism. Thought it was uh, insightful uh, note on, on both of those fronts. Walk, walk us through your uh, what you thought were the most important takeaways from SNA uh, and particularly what prompted you to write about military parochialism and uh, the the argument that you're making, or or what you what struck you as most interesting coming out of SNA that triggered uh, that thinking in, in in your case. What really triggered it were the congressional panel with representatives Gallagher and Luria. Um, I think it was actually Representative Gallagher who talked about the the bloodbath uh, coming in the FY23 Palm for the Navy and. You know, kind of the counterpoint to that was a presentation um, that included Eric Labs of the Congressional Budget Office. And, you know, the simple fact has been Congress, you know, since I think he went back over the last 10 years, has been willing to appropriate more than the DOD has requested for Navy shipbuilding. So you could say on one hand, okay, maybe DOD is just gaining this uh, quite cynically. You know, they know that there's <clears throat> support for shipbuilding in Congress. So if you have to send a budget over, make your cuts there, and then, and then Congress will restore them. That, that can be a very risky strategy. Uh, we're out of the Budget Control Act cap land. And, <clears throat> you know, FY22, while there might be a willingness to increase spending by $25 billion, the whole thing could freeze up in FY23 and you won't have that headroom. But I thought the other part, and this is what intrigued me, was just the, the defense for uh, the CG-47s, the Ticonderoga-class cruisers, that they are important for the fleet mix right now because of the number of vertical launch cells um, each of those ships carry. But, you know, the Navy has continued to try and divest those ships. And what I tried to point out was, you know, maybe there are some other options here. Um, if you continue to buy DDG 51s, you know, at, at two a year and you retire uh, Tycos at two a year, you might be able to make up that VLS shortfall with an Army program called Typhoon or Typhon, I guess, which is basically a land-based VLS uh, launcher unit. And 
Um, I'm sure the Air Force is going to weigh in with their views. Um, you know, I was reading a book on the, on the, the war in the Mediterranean, <clears throat> 1941 to 1943. And, uh, you know, you, you hear these arguments again and again and again about who's best able <clears throat> to deliver combat capability where it's needed. And there was a lovely little vignette about just a big debate over who was best able to uh, uh, effectively raid or degrade Tripoli as a port for the Axis was it the Royal Navy or the Royal Air Force? So these these inter-service rivalries are not new. Um, I think anybody who listens to the broadcast know, knows that uh, <clears throat> they're they're kind of a constant here. But I just thought if if you really want to pin uh, keeping the Tycos on VLS cells, you might want to step back a little bit and think about <clears throat> well. Let's look at net and VLSs and how would you distribute those? And are there advantages and disadvantages to maybe some of these systems that the Army is actually talking about? Uh, they want to deploy the first Typhon <coughs> battery in 2023. That might be an alternative that's that's acceptable. Um, so I, I just, from a, I, I get, <coughs> get it, you know, an event like Surface Navy Association, as is true for any of the service-centric events, you know, people are going to, they're going to support and promote the the capabilities of that service, but obviously Congress and OSD and you know the Joint Chiefs have to step back and say, well, you know, is this really the the best? Um, you know, are there what are the other services offer, and, and is that something people ought to be thinking about? So um, that's a long answer to <clears throat> kind of my takeaway from Surface Navy Association was. Uh, Maybe it's not good that that you know Congress does not allow DOD to retire these Tyco the Ticonderoga class cruisers and um, you know because that's going to be money that that could be used for some of these other missions or other capabilities that I think a lot of people feel DOD sorely needs and I, I will say one thing I thought one of the most telling answers to a question was <clears throat> I think it was both Gallagher's and and Luria's response to a question about war gaming, um, you know, do they really have insight into what some of these war games show? And uh, this may get back to a messaging issue that has been a persistent problem between the department and Congress. They're just not cluing people in on, on the Hill uh, to uh, make decisions that may not be in the interest of their districts and the, and the constituents that they represent, but but maybe in the broader interest of where where the U.S. military is going. I do believe she made a very compelling case to say that at a time when the Navy is talking about not having enough tubes or that tubes are important, uh, obviously a vital part of how we project force, uh, why are we getting rid of uh, seven ships that deliver us 800 tubes, right? Yeah. Uh, because each one of the Tycos is 122 tubes. You, you mentioned that in your piece, whereas each Burke-class destroyer is 99 put aside the fact that we don't even have enough weapons to put in all of these tubes, but, but let's, for the sake of argument, <laughs> um, uh, say that we do. I think that she makes a compelling case. You, you And I thought your use of the Defense Futures Simulator that was uh, put together uh, by our good friend Todd Harrison of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, but also Mackenzie Eaglin of the American Enterprise Institute in, war, in partnership with War on the Rocks, uh, is, a, is a great um, online tool to use to make some of these uh, trade-offs, right? On each and every single program, you can move the bar away from what the current decisions are 
to see what the budgetary impact is, right? So you want to delay those cruisers, you know, retain um, the two extra ships per year over the next four years, and it gives you a budgetary impact uh, on that, which I think, um, so I just want to give commend uh, to everybody what a, what a great tool that is. Um, let, me, let me take you uh, to uh, the week ahead. Obviously, uh, a lot of uh, events now that we're coming out of the Martin Luther King uh, weekend. Uh, walk us through what you think are the most interesting stuff that people should be paying attention to um, over the course of the coming week or beyond. Yeah, from a market standpoint, I think one of the most interesting things is going to be a house oversight uh, hearing on Transdime and spare parts pricing. And, uh, you know, Transdime has been up before Congress before on this issue. It happened in 2019. Um, I don't think anything really new uh, or major is going to come out of this. I think, you know, it's, it, it will be interesting to see, you know, does this kind of ripple through, um, not just to, to Transdime, but, you know, spare parts in general are, are pretty lucrative. This is going to key off the inspector general's report. He singled out Transdime. So <clears throat> that's something the market's going to be watching. Um, Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, is going to be speaking at the Center for New American Security on uh, the 19th. Um, you know, so it's going to be interesting to see what he says um, or what he can say about the FY23 budget and how some of the Air Force programs are faring and, and also really kind of what he'll reiterate about the testimony um, from last week's hearing on the impact of the continued resolution, which I think ought to concern a lot of people. Um, again, we're back to that full year CR scenario. Uh, you know, I, I personally think it's unlikely, but it, it is something that people have to ponder and consider. Um, and then General Raymond uh, is speaking today at a Mitchell Institute event. Uh, I think that happens three o'clock uh, Eastern Standard Time and then at the Center for Strategic and International Studies as well on the 19th. So kind of, you know, what's new with Space Force? How are they looking at the budget? Same question, what's the impact of a CR? And, you know, what, do you, what are your longer term, uh, how, what do you hope to see out of the FY23 POM to the degree, the degree he'll comment on that? Uh, and Byron, before we wrap up, uh, I want to ask you about outlays. Uh, you were talking about January uh, 12, uh, what was going to be released. You joined us, obviously, yeah. on the 10th. You're joining us here on the 18th. In between that were uh, outlays. Uh, did they, was, was there anything interesting in the in the figures released by Treasury well, think, that, that caught the your weird, attention? The weird part about it is, look, you know, outlays are reported monthly by Treasury. They, they, they're big, lumpy numbers, the market kind of looks at them um, just, you know, because they come out before earnings reported. Uh, the investment outlay showed pretty healthy growth in, in the December time period, the December quarter, but uh, it was very concentrated in Air Force procurement and Army RDT&E. So I wouldn't say that this was kind of a, boy, there's an 11% growth in, in defense for uh you know, contractors are going to report in the quarter, but it was better than last quarter. And I think there's probably some timing differences going on between these two numbers. Uh, the deficit, um, you know, that those numbers have also started to moderate a bit. And I suppose this is going to step back. This may be another broader question or issue. It's not in the outlay numbers, uh, Vago, but the other event last week was the 7% <clears throat> CPI number inflation. And I don't know. I mean, this may get back to uh, the earnings reports, but if you looked at the composition of that inflation number, 
<clears throat> there are a lot of things that drove that that just aren't relevant to defense. I don't know how many contractors are in the used car business or apparel business. <clears throat> sure, it Im impacts employees and workers, um, you know, who, who, are, who are making car decisions or wardrobe decisions. But from a defense inflation standpoint, it was hard to say that, oh, there, there's something really alarming in that report that's, that suggests these contractors are going to be having... Um, some real, some real margin pressure uh, uh, when they report earnings and when they start talking about it, uh, 2022. Byron, thanks very much as always for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, uh, and looking forward to having you on again next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Vago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.